On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax. It is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist. You're going to have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic so that we can all stay informed, prepared, and calm. We are all still in this together, my friends. Several weeks ago, we passed a milestone that should have been cause for celebration and ticker tape parades down Broadway and Constitution Avenue and all these exotic places. All Americans 16 and older are now eligible to get a vaccine. That's it. We should be speeding toward the legendary herd immunity. But something is standing in the way. I'm talking about vaccine hesitancy, people. People hesitate to get vaccinated. In many parts of the U.S., there are now more vaccines available than there are people lining up to get them. And uh, what I call this bad behavior, what I call this antisocial, what I call this dangerous, well, here to help us understand how we can change our behaviors and beat this pandemic is Dr. Katie Milkman. She is a professor of behavioral science at the University of Pennsylvania, host of the podcast Choiceology, an author of the new book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Dr. Katie Milkman, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. May I call you Katie? Please. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. So vaccine hesitancy to me is people who make a choice to not get vaccinated, right? So there's actually a pretty small fraction of the population that's extremely vaccine hesitant. Um, Most people are more movable, call them the movable middle. Maybe it's not maybe a priority for them. It seems inconvenient. They're a little anxious about the side effects they're hearing about. They're not super worried that they're going to have a a very negative experience with COVID-19, maybe because they're young and healthy and they think maybe the vaccine seems a little more frightening, actually, than the disease. Um, Those are the people sort of in the movable middle. It's that's the majority, actually, of the people who are left by many estimates is people who could be nudged towards vaccination and doing things like making it radically convenient. Radically convenient. You did research on flu shots. Absolutely. Right. Uh, People who hesitated or were willing to get flu shots. Were you able to change people's behavior? 
Yes, it was after coronavirus, but before we had the vaccine, a team that I co-lead of about 150 scientists around the world uh, came together and realized that making sure that people were actually interested in getting the COVID-19 vaccine when it when it was scientifically available and also when supply chain issues had been resolved was going to be an important frontier. And even though there was lots of attention being paid appropriately to developing vaccines and figuring out how to scale the distribution networks, no one was focused on the key issue of would people actually take them. So we decided to put our attention to that challenge and we ran two of the largest experiments that have ever been run this past fall testing different messages to encourage vaccination against the flu with the idea that we could port the insights from those experiments over and use similar messaging to try to encourage COVID-19 vaccination. So we partnered with both Walmart and two large um, regional health systems, Penn Medicine and Geisinger, and tested dozens of different messages that, again, they weren't They weren't specific to flu shots. They were more generally about getting a vaccine. And we tested everything from text messages before you had a doctor's appointment encouraging you to dedicate a vaccine to a loved one, sending you a joke about the flu like, hey, you know, have you heard the one about the flu? Don't spread it around, Um, to telling you let's start regional competition, let's beat our neighboring community in terms of our vaccine rates. We tried that with health systems. And then we tested different messages also with Walmart, with about 700,000 of their customers, encouraging them to to walk into the pharmacy and get a vaccine using similar messages, but some were different and tailored to that different decision of walking to the pharmacy or driving to the pharmacy and, and getting a vaccine. What's really interesting is that we did find text messages were uh, able to significantly boost vaccinations in both settings. And the best performing message was the same in all of the sites where we ran experiments. It was a simple message reminding you to get a vaccine and telling you one had been reserved for you or was waiting for you, which we think is really interesting. It plays on something we know about human psychology to be very important, which is when, when you feel that something has already been taken care of, when it's already allocated to you, there's an expectation you'll get it, it's being recommended, and it's simple, we're much more interested in following through. And so we think that that's something that should be in wide use. And actually, I just was noticing that New York City ran a campaign over the weekend where they were telling tourists, we have a vaccine waiting for you. So we've been, you know, getting the word out about our findings. They were published just a couple of weeks ago in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, and and we're starting to see more and more states and, and municipalities using this language. There's another study that I didn't do that was done by um, Gretchen Chapman, who was actually one of the architects of the, the mega study that I just described. Um, she did this research a few years ago. It showed that If she just gave an appointment to faculty and staff at Rutgers University to get a vaccine at a walk-in clinic, that increased vaccination rates against the flu 36 percent relative to simply informing the same people they could get an appointment. So it's another example of radical convenience. A slot was reserved for you. Not only are we messaging you that we've reserved a vaccine for you, but here is the date and time when you can get one. I think more more employers, more municipalities, more um, 
vaccine providers should be trying techniques like that to make it radically convenient so people don't even have to think about it. It's already taken care of. Okay, that's not a convenient time. I just text back to reschedule or call this number to reschedule. But I don't have to think through those details. You've already set it up for me. And and if it's coming from my doctor or my pharmacy, I also may trust that they've already thought through the costs and benefits and, you know, as we know, made the decision that we all really should make. It is worth getting this vaccine. What didn't work? What oh, fails? Oh, great question. So let me tell you a few things. First of all, I should say, it's not like by just telling people it was reserved for you, we got 100% of people getting yeah, vaccines, yeah. right? So yeah. so this is moving the needle, pun intended, significantly in the right direction. But it's not like we've solved the problem if we do these things. This is just, these are incredibly low-hanging fruit that we should be taking advantage of. So I want to say that. We also did test messages that were much less effective. So some messages that I'll say bombed that I was really excited to test and thought might work were things like, a joke about getting a vaccine. People didn't find it funny. <laughs> in fact, when we were sort of more casual and conversational in the messages we sent from a from a pharmacy or a healthcare provider, that was very ineffective. Um, nagging more seemed to be important, right? Like two messages seem to be better than one if we're going to try. So, and there's lots of evidence that nagging works. There's a wonderful study that was done. So um, nagging does work. Nudging nagging does work. Nagging works. It works so well. It, it There's a study that shows that tuberculosis patients who get, you know, her basically harassed to follow up on their um, medication regimens. Like, they get a text message. If they don't reply, yes, I did the thing, then they get a follow-up phone call and and, the, and keep getting nagged, have vastly better outcomes than tuberculosis patients who aren't nagged. So I, I hate to say it, but if, if we're not ready to mandate it, then we'd better be ready to nag. Is that what's happening now? I saw Tony Fauci on a popular TV show yet again, yet again, yet again. He's just, well, you know, vaccine would be really good. <laughs> I, I think that's CDC. different. I, I think that's different than nagging. That's that's like a consistent public health message coming from leadership, which I think is different than personalized. You know, you're getting text messages, flyers, phone calls. Oh, yeah, calls. that is different. So yeah. what, do you, what do you call it when the leader's telling you over and over? That's, I'd call that a consistent public health message, which is good. But I also actually want to point out some recent research that was done by um, folks at Stanford and MIT that that points to some risks of having these messages come from political leaders. So unfortunately, we're living in a polarized time. I don't have to tell you that, but I heard about turned, that. Yeah. You've heard about that, yeah. Uh, researchers showed that when a message was displayed from Joe Biden encouraging people to get a vaccine, it was displayed to Republicans. It actually reduced interest, whereas when those same people saw basically the same message delivered by Donald Trump on Fox News, it increased their interest in getting the vaccine. And just as you'd expect, Democrats, you see the opposite pattern, right? They're they're persuadable when it comes to seeing a message from Joe Biden. But when they see a message from Donald Trump, Trump, it depresses their interest in vaccination. So one of the things that that suggests is that tailoring the messenger may be important. And if that's not possible, which it isn't often, then we may really want messengers who are apolitical so that we aren't going to see that kind of backlash. How often is too much nagging leads to negative behavior or not getting vaccinated in this case? Yeah, it's a great question. Again, the data does not suggest that that is the average response. There may be some people on the margin who, you know, it's not all of these things are sort of an average effect. And so we're doing what works best on average. But on average, I, I haven't seen research on reactants where you're we're using too much. 
There's certainly some persuasion tactics, though, that can feel too heavy-handed and too extreme. Some people were worried in early days that if we, for instance, offered incentives for vaccination, it could backfire by conveying um, that it's a risky thing and we have to pay you to basically compensate you for taking this risky act. But it seems like when there's a really large incentive that may compensate for any extra perceived risk. So there's some people who've been writing about, you know, maybe we don't want to do $20 incentives. Maybe that's too small. It just signals this thing is risky. And there was some survey data out of a study at UCSD suggesting a $20 incentive might actually depress interest again because it's it conveys this is this is a hard, unpleasant thing to do, and we have to pay you to compensate you for it. But when the incentive was $100, that survey data flip. Now, now whatever anxiety it induces to be paid is overwhelmed by the added benefit of all that extra cash. So I think a lot of testing is happening right now. I've just actually been on calls this morning with some different municipalities thinking about creative ways to encourage vaccination with, with prizes and potentially lotteries. But it's, you know, this is a brand new world we're in where previously most organizations weren't ready to experiment with these sort of things. In fact, we, when we were setting up these massive experiments last fall around flu shots, we wanted to include different incentives and lawyers were very nervous. Uh, Today, when I talk to people about doing incentives for vaccines, no one's nervous. They're just ready to, like, this is such a pressing problem. Everyone's ready to hit the the go button quickly and see what works. But unfortunately, we didn't do the preparation I think we should have in the years past so that we'd know exactly what to do at this moment. And a lot of experimentation is happening live. How much trouble is it that it's a needle and you watch it on television, and the needle goes all the way in. How much of that is at play here? In I'm play, sure that's some some part of what we're seeing. Uh, you know, it's hard to it's hard to give you a statistic for exactly the fraction, but it, I think a challenge is always that we overweight the instant experience of something and underweight the long-term values. It's called present bias, and it it leads us to, you know, exercise too little, eat too much junk food, and probably avoid needles that could save our lives. There's and no die question. later. Yeah. And, <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so it, it's a, it shouldn't, but it probably does loom large for some people. And I think that's one of the reasons it's creative and smart that, or, that, that lots of people are thinking about ways to make the experience more fun. You get a beer when you come in, you know, come on your way to the, to the baseball game. Um, what can we do that makes the experience seem less heavy, less unpleasant and more delightful? I actually wrote an op-ed for The Economist la- at the end of last year, sort of anticipating literally this moment and writing about what are all the things we know that might reduce hesitancy, encourage people to come. And I, I was mostly joking, but only there was like a slight bit of uh, seriousness to it. I was saying like, what if we just rented all of the ice cream trucks around America and sent them around so that, you know, radical convenience, it comes to your door, you hear the jingle and you get an ice cream the minute you get your vaccine. So there's something delightful to look forward to. I mean, it was a joke. It wasn't a serious suggestion. But the the insight that we want to make the experience something you see a reason to look forward to, not just to dread, is certainly important. And, and I do like that lots of organizations are thinking about ways to try to do that. We'll be back right after this. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. 
You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils, you'll want to invite everyone over, from book club to the fantasy league, even the in-laws. It smells... Amazing. Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils are infused with two times more natural essential oils versus regular Airwick Scented Oils for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Hmm. Transform your space with scents like white sage and mahogany or lavender and water lily. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. What about people not wanting to be forced to do something? This whole thing, personal freedom and so on. Is there a way to overcome that? It's a great question. I mean, I think the way to overcome that is by giving people, in a sense, the free. It's the reason we haven't seen a vaccine mandate roll out broadly yet. Instead, and I'm doing these studies where we're trying to figure out, okay, what are the things where we still give you the freedom to choose but make it radically convenient, for instance, by giving you an appointment that you can cancel and you don't have to show up for, but here it is, and we tell you it's reserved for you. So all of these things that I'm talking about preserve the freedom to choose. The next step that we'll get to, I think, you know, if we aren't going to reach herd immunity, but I'm still not giving up on that, by the way, with just using these slightly lighter touch techniques, is we're going to start to see a lot of mandates. My employer, the University of Pennsylvania, just mandated that all students need to have this vaccine to to be back on campus in the fall. And I think it's great. And they've been mandating vaccines forever. This is not a change. It's just an addition to the list of vaccines you're mandated Well, it's to this have. thing you can't, your kid can't go to elementary school till you've got all the vaccines done for crying out loud. Exactly. 200-year-old technology, people. So I think we'll see more and more of that and the combination of radical convenience, mandates being rolled out, places that are going to make it really inconvenient for the things you do do want to do. Like you can't go to a basketball game potentially someday unless you're vaccinated or right. So as we make it radically inconvenient not to be vaccinated, that is also going to help. Well, the whole thing gets back to this business of fairness. It's not fair to me if you get the virus to mutate in you and reinfect me. That's not fair to me. So uh, that's a hard message. Do people respond to that at all? We tested messaging like do it to protect other people. And actually, there's a lot of survey results that have come out saying that kind of messaging resonates when people are just responding on a survey. We did not We did not find a correlation, I should say, between what people said would persuade them and what actually persuaded them, which is one of the reasons I think it's so important that we test actual decisions rather than what people say will change their actions. Well, it's the whole thing about, about polling when it comes out wrong is they tell you one thing and do something else. It's why we were so, you know, why we jumped on this opportunity to run the test 
we did with hundreds and thousands of people in the fall on actual decisions about vaccination because we thought that would be so much more telling than than survey data. So surveys suggest that that kind of messaging, do it to protect others, is effective. But we did not find that was one of the most effective strategies in our tests. Doesn't mean it couldn't be because COVID is different than the flu. But you know, we're recommending here's the best performer. We tested it was it's waiting for you. It's reserved for you. Come and get it. And so that that leads to recommending that kind of messaging. Let me just go down the list from your book. Present bias. You just think about the present instead of the future. So you don't want to get a vaccine because it'll poke you in the arm. So I'm not worried about dying. You got it. It's a yeah. it's a crazy thing that distorts our decisions. Uh, and so the premise of the book is once we understand what those barriers are, we we actually can do a better job of changing by tailoring solutions. So present bias is one where actually too often we just think like, let me just push through and do this hard thing. But present bias makes that a terrible strategy, right? Nike's slogan, just do it, is completely misguided in that we can't just do it. We're we're slaves to the present. We're slaves to the instant gratification. And so once we acknowledge that, we can actually achieve goals more effectively by figuring out how to make the present align with our long-term goals. So if we find ways to make it fun, we talked about giving beers when, when you get the vaccine or an ice cream cone. Um, there's other ways to make goal pursuit fun. You link something tempting and desirable or you choose a way to pursue it that's social and enjoyable. People persist longer. And that's a, a really important insight. If you have a goal to get in shape, well, I'll buy these Nike shoes right now and then I'll, I'll satisfy the present and the future. So that's temptation <laughs> bundling. That's Temptation bundling is when you, for instance, only let yourself binge watch your favorite TV shows while you're on the elliptical, or uh, you only let yourself listen to your favorite podcast like this one while you're doing household chores. So whatever would be um, aligned with your goal, you link a temptation with it and say, you know, only get to pick up your favorite coffee treat, frappuccino, mocha chino, whatever you love on your way to hit the books at the library. So by Linking a temptation with a thing that's that's goal aligned. Now all of a sudden, the temptation is to do the thing that's good for you. Is that uh, gamifying? It's a form of gamification. Gamification is more, you know, adding the bells and whistles of a game, like stars and streaks and badges and points and and leaderboards, and that can make things fun for people. Not everyone. Uh, but you're saying there's also this business where people just forget. Yeah, it's amazing to me how, you know, flake out and forgetting are this big barrier to do or like put it off, you know, oh, next week, I forgot to do it this week, I'll do it next week. They're big barriers to achieving lots of things, particularly the things that really like a one-time decision can add up. Like, I mean to enroll in a 401k or I mean to go get my colonoscopy or whatever it is. And, and I meant to vote, but especially li anything that's a limited time opportunity. There was a clinic for free flu vaccines at my workplace, but I forgot. We we forget to do things that can have big consequences more often than we acknowledge or appreciate. And so understanding how do you make sure that that doesn't happen? How do you make the kinds of plans that will be sticky in memory and send the kinds of reminders that come just at the moment when someone can take action so they're effective? That can be a really potent tool for change, but only when forgetting is the barrier. What about just laziness? 
Laziness is huge, and that's why I emphasize radical convenience. But this is one of those barriers where setting default options, meaning I, you know, what the path of least resistance, the thing that will happen if you take no action, like you don't even have to enroll in your company's 401k because they enroll you automatically when you sign up or your country's default policy is that you're an organ donor. So you don't even have to check a box at the DMV to become one when we, we put laziness Uh, towards whatever the best outcome is that's helpful. And then the way to to use laziness when it's a repeated decision is to build a habit so that the sort of autopilot in my mind goes straight to the thing that is good for me on a daily basis. For me, of a certain age, I got vaccinated back in, first time back in January. The so-called fresh start, is that what I've got? The fresh start effect? I hope so. Yeah. So this is this is something I've studied and I wrote about a lot in my book, I, which I hope is coming at a fresh start for many of us who are trying to figure out how to change, how to make life better um, at this moment and use science to do that. The fresh start effect is this interesting phenomenon where there are moments in our lives that feel like a new beginning and the vaccine, getting the vaccine and being able to go back to some of the old ways for me certainly has felt like a fresh start. And for many people, um, they can be as small as the start of a new week or, you know, we all know the fresh start that comes with New Year's and and it, they motivate us to pursue goals with renewed enthusiasm. These moments because we feel like, OK, I have a clean slate and a new beginning. Whatever wasn't working for me before, that was the old me. This is the new me. And and it gives us this optimism and um, motivation that we don't normally have. So I do hope that this will be a fresh start for millions, if not billions of people. And and there was a really interesting data that came out just last week about how many people are rethinking the way they want to work in this moment. And maybe yeah. that's part of what's happening. What, leave as we... my house? What are you, crazy? Get, right. Drive ex- to an office? <laughs> well, we we went through this forced experiment, which is, uh, you know, none of us would have ever chosen, obviously, and so many lives lost. I, I certainly don't, you know, want to say that it was a, you know, this was horrible, but... We explored, in a way we wouldn't usually, a new way of living. And those kinds of experiments and, and the reflection that they they cause us to do can lead to a discovery of something that's better. So I do hope some people and some organizations will take the learnings from this year in this fresh start moment and apply them. Is there anything not working about a fresh start? Is there a perception that I have that's dangerous? Are there downsides to that? That's interesting. The big downside we've seen from fresh starts is that they can be disruptive when things are going well. So so normally we could use a jolt when we're trying to pursue goals to get us extra motivated to tackle something new. And so fresh starts, I've mostly written about with my collaborators all their benefits, all the ways that they motivate us to, you know, we can use them to encourage people to save more, to exercise more regularly, and so on. But... My former student, Heng Chen Dai, who's now a professor at UCLA at the Anderson School, has shown that fresh starts can be disruptive when people are having a really good streak because just as they disrupt things that aren't working and help us step back, think big picture, gain motivation to pursue something new, if they disrupt something that's going well, that can be a negative. So that's the only negative I've seen. Our behavior is going to change. Our social norms, what we expect from each other, going to change in your learning. There's no question that things are going to change. One of my favorite studies that points to the way they'll change, though, is this is weird. It's a study of a London tube strike in 2014 where... The, tube, were, everybody, is the subway. 
That's in, a subway in, in London, in exactly. So a bunch of tube workers, subway workers, went on strike and a number of different stations closed. And for a few days, lots of people had to take a different route that they'd never taken before to get to work. So they're, they're forced, sort of like we have been in the last year, to do something that they never would have chosen to do, but they've got to do it. Like working from home or get, you know, not working out in a gym or online schooling. And the big finding that I found so fascinating from the study is what happens after that that period ends and you can go back to your normal route. And what the researchers found is that 95% of people went back to the way things had been. They, you know, they were like, this is worse. <laughs> I don't like online schooling. I don't like working from home, whatever it was. The way I was or doing it was better. taking the long way to work, t- taking two extra subway stops to get Yeah, that was worse. Yeah. But 5% discovered something new that was better. So in particular, it was actually people who had been taking subway lines, and they could, this really interesting data, they could see who had been taking a route to get to work that was on a part of the map that was distorted to make it fit better visually, but actually made you have the wrong sense of the distance between two points. So the people who were on distorted portions of the subway map or parts of the subway that tend to run at a slow pace, like, you know, nine miles an hour instead of 25 miles an hour because they're going around a bend. Less frequent trains, for example. Yeah, You got it. They found a better way to get to work and they stuck to it. And so that's what I would predict as we come out of this pandemic is that most of us, for most things, had already found an optimum and will go back to doing things a way that worked better. But we will have discovered some things that were better through forced experimentation. My family, for instance, we discovered a hiking trail that we love. And and we probably won't go back to going to museums and birthday parties every day of every weekend and rather keep (laughs) keep that hike in our route. And I may spend a couple days working from home and doing Zoom meetings and, and skip my commute. But Uh, Most things, you know, I'm going to go back to in-person concerts instead of Zoom concerts and in-person family gatherings rather than Zoom gatherings. And I think that's probably what we'll see of most most people around the world. Some discoveries that will stick and be better, but mostly the things we used to do will will still be our preference and things will go back to the way they were. Well, more about me. So I started making bread during this pandemic. I don't know if I'm ever going to buy a loaf of bread again. Oh, my God. Making bread is so easy. But the other thing I have not missed at all is getting sick. You guys, I'm not joking. Because I've been isolated, because I wear a mask every flipping where I go, I have not gotten the head colds, the minor sore throat. Do you think that'll catch on? I think some people will still be wearing masks for the reason you described, that they discovered they liked it better. I don't I don't think we're going to see anything like the levels of mask wearing that we saw in the peak of the pandemic this winter and with mandates. But I'm sure, you know, maybe it's 5%, like the London tube study. I'm sure some fraction of people will dis- discover this was better for them, just like you did. And I don't know whether that'll be 5% or 20%. I'm confident it won't be 80%. But I do think we'll see some more mask wearing on a, a regular basis. And particularly, we may see it seasonally uh, that it spikes as cold and flu season comes around. You got all these fabulous theories about behavior change for good. Is there something you're going to predict that this summer people will stop wearing masks, people wear masks more? Do you have any prediction? I think my my biggest prediction is that, um, and we've already seen it to some degree, but I think um, Lots of people are rethinking the way they want to live right now, and we've seen huge migrations as a result of this pandemic. I think I think we'll see a lot of shifts in 
um, the way people commute um, permanently because people will have discovered a better way and the way they work permanently. And I think, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of enthusiasm about health uh, in the years ahead and particularly in the months ahead as people sort of decide I want to live a healthier life and be a better me. So I, I my big prediction would be goal, with goal setting increasing, um, more more people engaging in the kinds of activities that signal they're ready for change and they want to make uh, want to make that change in their lives. There you go, everybody. You're going to make changes because of this pandemic. This is so cool. Thank you so much, Katie. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. My guest today has been Dr. Katie Milkman, behavioral scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, and author of the new book. And this is what the book you need, people. How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Healthy and living a productive, prosperous life. I'm Bill Nye. And my friends, this is a pandemic. We are all in this together. And more than ever, science rules. If you like science rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. Helps us out, helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Science Rules Coronavirus Edition is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor today is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford. And remember, at Stitcher and all around the world, science rules. One more thing. Get vaccinated as soon as you can. Stitcher. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.